Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Dr. No, starring Sean Connery, Joseph Wiseman, Ursula Andress, Jack Lord, John Kitzmiller, Bernard Lee, and directed by Terrence Young. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Nice. Stuart in L.A. Dr. Arnie. <laughs> Sounds like a bad music video, Dr. Arnie. We are here finally talking about a series that has been in the back of our heads for as long as Now Playing has been around, because this is one of the first movies I've ever reviewed for Now Playing, was James Bond! And now I get to come full circle as we start our 25-episode mega James Bond series! Yeah, that's, I think, why it's been in the back of my mind, is the, ah, crap, I don't want to do that, there's too many of them series. <laughs> I used to share that opinion, and then we did Marvel, and I was like, ah, whatever, 25? Shh! No problem. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those series that when you think of movie series, this one jumps to mind instantly. So eventually we probably had to get around to it. But now we have a good reason because Skyfall is coming out in the fall of 2012. And we are going to do all the reviews of all the James Bond movies leading up to that in anticipation of the brand new Daniel Craig James Bond movie. Honestly, I'm not sure if Skyfall was enough to convince me. Perhaps the world is not enough to convince me to do James Bond, but it is James Bond's 50th anniversary. We are 50 years from the premiere of the movie we're discussing today, Dr. No, and I'm like, all right, it's like a perfect storm. There's a new movie, it's the 50th anniversary, Brock really wants to do it. <laughs> I am the Bond fan of the three of us, and I really look forward to hearing what you guys see in a series that is one of my favorites. You're not alone, Brock. I know the series as well. I am a fan. I think more of the casual variety. When I think of Bond, I think of family. This series is one that I saw entirely with my biological family. With the exception of the Daniel Craig works, every one in the series I either saw with my older brother or with my parents. And it was just a part of my childhood. I felt like they were always on and I was always going to see them. And I asked my mom, why did you always make us watch Bond? And I think it was special for my parents as well that my mom and dad, their first date was Dr. No. And from what it sounds like, Connery was the only one saying no at the end of that date. They got married two months later. And I'm surprised Connery's not in my baby book. I think this series is just a big part of my childhood. I'm looking forward to returning. I have not seen most of these movies since adolescence. With the exception of the Daniel Craig movies, I have not seen a Bond movie in the last decade. And that 
makes me kind of the newbie here. There was like a one-month period where I think the Turner Networks had just gotten the rights to James Bond because they started doing James Bond marathons all the time in the very early 90s. And it was one of those series I'd heard a lot about. I knew mostly ads for the Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton films. And I'm like, James Bond, Star Trek had kind of hit the skids for me after five. I was looking for a franchise to (laughs) dig into. James Bond seemed like the one. And so I sat through like an entire marathon of watching all the movies with a few exceptions. I don't know that TNT got the rights for On Her Majesty's Secret Service back then, or if they did, they just chose not to show it. But I watched all of them in like a two-day no-sleep marathon. And since then, I've kind of kept up. I've seen all the Brosnan ones. I've seen Casino Royale, the remake. Back then, I even read a James Bond novel. I've read Casino Royale. I was trying to dig that deep, but it didn't stick with me. Stuart, like you've often said, comic book movies aren't your genre. I gotta think spy films aren't really my thing. And I just couldn't stick with Bond That was literally half my life ago that I tried it. I'm looking forward to going back and trying it out again and seeing these movies over a greater span of time than two days so I can remember which one had the boat chase and which one had the octopusy. Well, that last one you'll figure out pretty quick. And like Stuart, I have to say, the reason I'm the Bond fan here is because my mother and I would watch these when I was a kid when they were on ABC on Sunday nights. And the reason we got into it is 1983's Never Say Never Again. The whole family went to the movie theater to see, quote-unquote, the real James Bond to my parents. And after that, I was hooked. And from 1983 all the way to, I guess, 1999, my mom and I would see every James Bond movie in the theater. Now, that's only eight movies, but that's over a 15, 19-year span, whatever how many years that is. And it became our thing. So when I think of James Bond, I think of my mom and all those times that I actually went home from college on purpose just to see Goldeneye with her. Couldn't see with anybody else. I had to cut my mom off with the Brosnan. I gotta be, I'll be honest. I'm not a Brosnan fan. We'll see what I think of him going back. But I was like, after Tomorrow Never Dies, I'm like, Mom, can't do it. Then she got divorced, and I'm like, all right, I'll go to die another day. Stop crying. But yeah, it, it has been a thing with me and my mom. And yeah, I saw a lot of them in theaters For Your Eyes Only was my first one. But we were actually a Roger Moore family. That was the one that I loved as a kid. I know he's the uncool one now, and who knows what I'll think. But that was the one I really loved, because he was the funny one. He was James Bond when we were kids. Yes, Roger Moore to me was James Bond, obviously, until Timothy Dalton. And then I got really swept up in the whole culture around then, so... There you go. Well, not only are we going back to the movies, I decided, what the hell? These are books, right? Ian Fleming wrote these. I don't know anything about Ian Fleming, but I know there's a lot of books here, too. So I've made the ultimate commitment over at Books and Nachos. I'm going to read the books as they were published, which means that I'm not covering Dr. No this week. I'm covering the first book, Casino Royale, but I'll be reading all of the works that Ian Fleming wrote about James Bond. Yes, and thanks to Stuart's gumption, I had signed on to read the second half of those. So I will be doing the other half, the end half. You're Roger Moore to my Connery. See how that works? You gotta step in. After seven episodes, it's all you, baby. Maybe what'll happen is Stuart will do the first seven, Brock will start doing them, but then Stuart will come back and do one more that nobody expected, maybe one of the non-Flemings. That's actually what it ha- that's actually how I have it scheduled. But. 
Well, we'll find out when we go to Books and Nachos. I actually have never read the books either, being the Bond fan, never read it. I'm a Bond movie fan, so I am looking forward to seeing some of the differences. So, I'm the newbie, and I'm the only one so far who's read James Bond. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> There's only 12 books originally. You would think there was more, but 12 books, and two of those are short stories, and two of them were published posthumously. And so when he first wrote his first book in 1953, it was a huge, huge success. And from that moment on, every year, every summer, he'd go down to his GoldenEye estate in Jamaica. It's called GoldenEye. Nice. He actually did have a lot of trouble with these books with people complaining about the sex and violence. It was a very big deal back then. And especially when I started making the movies, the same issues came up over and over again. So what happened was James Bond became very popular very quickly, and they became especially popular in the United States when John F. Kennedy said From Russia With Love was one of his favorite books. So the film options were hot property, and a man named Harold Saltzman got the rights from Ian Fleming to create these movies, and he couldn't get an investor. And meanwhile, a guy named Albert R. Cubby Broccoli, also wanted to produce the films, went to Saltzman with the idea to buy him out, and they decided to partner up. And with Broccoli's help, they were able to get backing for a first James Bond movie. And just for the record, the Broccoli family are the people that brought you the vegetable, the one that you can't eat without dousing it with cheese. Is that true? It's absolutely true. And they formed Eon Productions, which still produces Bond movies to this day. So the rights to Casino Royale was already bought up from somebody else, so they couldn't start there. They wanted to use Thunderball as the first movie, but they couldn't do that because of pending lawsuits, which we will talk about in a few episodes, no doubt. And so they decided on Dr. No because the story was pretty simplistic compared to other things, and they can make it on the cheap. They got a budget of a million dollars from United Artists, and they started production immediately. And just for a fun fact, other people who were considered before Sean Connery got the role, we got Cary Grant, Richard Johnson, who was very close to getting it, a man named Patrick McGowan, who was pretty popular on TV, and David Niven, who will also come up later in our series. But Sean Connery got the nod, and they started filming in 1961, I believe, and it was released in 1962 in the UK to thunderous applause around the world. And the rest, as they say, is history. And so that leads us to Dr. No, which I only know is the first movie in the series thanks to the James Bond video collection. Do you guys remember that? They actually had ads on TV. You'd get like a James Bond movie a month. I do. And I really wanted it. And my parents said no. Did they say Dr. No? (laughs) Yes. Actually, it was such a scar in my life that when they re-released them in the 90s, when GoldenEye came out, I actually went and bought them. One a week until I owned all of them, including the non-Eon ones. I think this is my first time seeing Dr. No. I thought I'd seen it in the marathon. If I did, I have zero memory of that because nothing in this movie seemed even the slightest bit familiar. Oh, I knew this movie. This is the one with the tarantula. We're going to talk about it. But why don't you give them a plot first, Arnie? When two MI6 spies are killed in Jamaica, Mon, MI6 leader M sends Bond. James Bond, Agent 007 with a license to kill, to investigate. There, James teams up with CIA agent Felix Leiter and his local agent Quarrel in investigating the murders. But James soon finds himself the target of several assassination attempts. Eventually, Bond uncovers the source of the intrigue. The mad scientist Dr. No has built a nuclear plant on one of the Jamaican islands with the intent of disrupting Cape Canaveral rocket launches. At Nose Island Base, Quarrel is killed and Bond is captured along with Comely seashell collector Honey Rider. No asks Bond to join Spectre, the special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, and extortion group, 
But Bond says no and is beaten. But Bond escapes and causes Noah's nuclear reactor to melt down just moments before it can cause the Project Mercury space launch to crash. Noah's henchman flees, so Noah, with his super strong but clumsy artificial hands, fights Bond and ends up falling into the superheated water of the reactor. Bond finds Honey in the base, and the two escape just before it explodes, and then they enjoy some alone time in their escape boat as credits roll. Now... Being the newbie to the series, I obviously know the conventions, having seen the ones that I did see, but what shocked me is how much of what we would come to just know as iconic Bond is present right here in this very first movie from the very first shot, that iconic Iris Redisel as James Bond walks out, shoots the screen, the iris falls away, the James Bond theme plays. I mean, it's amazing to see all of this iconography in the first film when so many franchises we've seen. Jason didn't get his hockey mask until part three. John Williams didn't write the Imperial March until Empire. So much takes multiple installments to get. Here, I'd say they're at 80% this first movie. That's a real surprise for me, too. I didn't remember it that way. I remember Dr. No feeling very different from all of the other movies. But was this added in post? Did they go back and fix this, or was it always this way, Brock? It was always this way. The title designer, Maurice Binder, came up with the idea of the what Arnie called the Iris. I always took it to be a sniper rifle. Guy's going to shoot Bond, and sh- Bond shoots him first. That's how I always took it to be. I thought it was a camera. Like, he's being watched, and no, I'll show you, I'll shoot you dead. It's a gun? It is called the gun barrel sequence. Maurice Binder came up with that for the first movie. Then after that, with the dancing girls and the music and all the fancy titles, that's all him. And the producers went crazy. They liked it so much that they decided, since they were going to use a pre-credit sequence in the next movie, here they don't have that. They decided they have to make sure people know the movie's starting, so they had the gun barrel sequence, and then they go into the opening scene before the titles. And that's why it continued on. But here is where it originated, just to get the people in the mood that, this is a different kind of movie, folks. Here we go. I was ticked off that we didn't get some, you know, babe singing, Dr. No! Three blind mice. Three blind mice. That is not a Bond theme. Three Blind Mice is the third song in there, too. It starts with the classic Bond theme. Then we just go into some groovy 60s riff, man. Yeah. And then Three Blind Mice. I'm a little confused as to what I'm watching (laughs) by the time we get to the Three Blind Mice, I have to admit. But I'm kind of enjoying the Calypso. Three Blind Mice walking down the street. I'm liking it. To the Calypso beat. I'm a Harry Belafonte fan. What can I say? I was just going to say, Harry Belafonte, he was charting big time. He had brought the whole Calypso scene into this. They clearly didn't have enough money to pay him. They should have at least gotten him for three blind mice, if not like a real song. (laughs) But also, of course, gentlemen, it, it ties into the opening scene, and the idea behind that part of the credits was so it can go seamlessly into the movie. And Arnie, you're right. A lot of the James Bond formula is present, but it still very much, to me, feels different than a real James Bond movie. But you're right, a lot of the elements are here, especially in the character of James Bond, is very much present here and leaves a giant footprint on the rest of the series. And the groundwork is not more apparent than when we first meet James Bond in that casino scene when he's playing Sylvia Trench at the Baccarat table. 
you could really get a sense of what they're trying to do with the character. According to everybody on this set, including Connery himself, the director, Terrence Young, was a very much a real-life James Bond with his swagger and his style. And he really coached Connery on what he wanted for the character and the style of his clothes and how he would walk and all that kind of stuff. I'm not kidding. <laughs> oh, I see. Terrence Young taught Sean Connery how to be James Bond. I'm sure he would love for people to think of that. I don't know. You know, we weren't there, but that seems a little bit self-gratifying to say it that way. I think Connery has always been kind of cool. Let's just face it. Sean Connery, he gets my vote for one of the coolest dudes ever. He is just iconic in that sense of the swagger, the smirk. He is both dangerous and good-humored, and that's a tough combo to pull off. I'm probably not alone in saying that he is considered the best Bond. We'll, we'll debate that as we go through the movies. Perhaps we'll be proven wrong, but he is the classic Bond. He is the Bond with the longest shadow that everyone else will be comparing themselves to. He is your first time. I agree with that. I think he is exceptionally cool. There's a reason why they didn't do Never Say Never Again Again with Roger Moore. (laughs) Maybe that would be called Please Give Me a Job. I don't know. But honestly, because I'm too young to have been into the James Bond craze with Sean Connery, I became associated with Sean Connery, believe it or not, because of the Presidio, the Hunt for Red October, (laughs) and... Indiana Jones. Untouchables, his Oscar-winning performance. I didn't see that movie in theaters, but I certainly saw the trailer enough. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's where I became familiar with him was the late 80s and his work after that. And I am a big Sean Connery fan. I think he's a really cool presence to have. Even in not-so-good movies, I always enjoy seeing him in it like Medicine Man. (laughs) Sure. I don't know what person alive, who doesn't love Sean Connery? But Stuart, you get the sense of danger and the excitement and the intensity is, is all Sean Connery. You're not wrong there. But the stylishness of Bond is what they were talking about with Terrence Young. The combination of this man's lethal, but he's suave. Because Sean Connery was not brought up suave, man. The guy is a blue-collar man. He filed down the edges to give the screen persona. So you're not wrong, but everybody on this thing, including Sean Connery, and all the materials I was reading and watched for this podcast, repeatedly said that Terrence Youngs was the one who gave James Bond the classic sheen over Sean Connery. It's that combo, too, that makes it so exciting. Because if Bond were all just... Hello, high class. Like, if he was all English accent and nose and all that, he would be obnoxious. It is the fact that this guy is kind of a brute, too. You know, he plays with it. There are times when he is tuxedo bond, and there are times where, you know, he just pulls a gun out and shoots somebody point blank dead. And I love the fact that, yes, Connery can play low and high class almost simultaneously exactly and in this opening scene the director stole us from another movie but you don't really see bond's face until he says his name you see his hands you see what he's doing you see his chest that was on purpose to give the anticipation so when he says the line it's an instant classic and you know exactly who this guy is and the cigarette dangling out of his mouth, the way he says his name. Talk about a classic scene, a classic line. That's it right away. And when the conversation following with Sylvia Trench, you really get an idea of what we're talking about. He has it all together, and it's just an amazing entrance and a shadow over the rest of the series. It starts right there. It's remarkable. What's shocking to me about this opening scene, though, is that he's not on the job. I'm so used to the trope of James Bond starts on one mission, then goes to another. 
And I see him playing cards there. He's obviously one-upping Sylvia in the game. Again, the one book I read is Casino Royale, and the majority of that book, just to give Stuart a preview before he reads it, is James Bond playing cards. So I'm thinking they're making a nod to the original Bond book. Obviously, the Sylvia must be dastardly or something. No, I think he's just out to win some money and get some pussy. Galore. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. But yes, that is always the subtext of every Bond is every espionage trick is really just a pretense for getting laid. That's what Connery is. want to point out that as a kid, I think I wasn't so crazy about Connery because he is almost too lusty. You know, he is so adult, you know, very handsome guy. They play with that so well. But as a child, I wanted somebody that was amusing. And I think Roger Moore kind of carried that comedy a lot more than Connery did. But I got to say, I'm really impressed with how confident he is in this role. I dare say, we'll find out as we get into this, he probably doesn't play this part any better in future movies than he does right here. He knows what he's doing. I disagree with that comment. He does know what he's doing. I think he gets more comfortable in Bond's skin in the next two movies. But we'll see as we go. But this Sylvia chick is out to seduce him, and she winds up in his house. That's kind of a weird way of bringing all of this in. Does he live there? I just thought that was a hotel room. I don't know that James Bond, does he own a house? That's what I'm saying. I never thought of him as domesticated. You know, it was not a bachelor pad. Actually, I don't even know what that is. I do know that the idea of Sylvia Trench, she's supposed to be in the next six movies. She's signed on for a cameo in each of the six movies. In the last movie, she would be the main Bond girl. So she was supposed to be his main squeeze for a while. And that's what they're doing here with her. They were setting her up for that. That's a heartbreaker. She must have gotten tired of that. And also in that Sylvia Trench scene, though, when he thinks his house was broken into, you immediately see him go into spy mode and then switch back into suave James Bond right after. You know, it's really a great, also a great reason that scene's there is to show us this is a man of action as needed. Well, not quite as needed. He did stick around that extra little bit. (laughs) It's a classic James Bond move, man. He could always make time for a martini or a woman in need. (laughs) Now, Stuart, you reference this kind of area of American culture regularly throughout our podcast. Were women really this loose in the 60s, the early 60s? Well, what you're catching is America on the cusp of the sexual revolution. I mean, bras are burning now. People are coming out of the 50s. They're being encouraged to be this way. Are they this way? I don't think by and large they are, but this is the fantasy. And James Bond is a fantasy. This is not spies as it would really be. And I think a lot of people that maybe are coming into Bond cold and maybe have never seen any of them will be surprised at how kind of campy and kitschy this world is. It is not a straight-up adventure. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say, Dr. No, by and large, is barely about plot. Barely. I'm not even sure I understand the plot. It is really about having a good time, wink, wink, in every sense of the word. And yes, the sex is a part of it. See, Stuart, I think this movie plays more like a detective story than most other James Bond movies. If this movie is not about plot and all about what you're saying, I think the action scenes come out of the plot more than other James Bond movies we're going to see down the pike. Okay, well, let's get into that. What's the mission this time? He's got to go to Jamaica because those three blind mice from the beginning have shot a British operative. Or he's disappeared. They don't know that they've shot him. They did. But he's disappeared and took some files with him, and Connery needs to figure out what's going on. Because the man was working with the CIA about some sort of 
radio signals to interfere with the launching of rockets at Cape Canaveral. And at the time, the space race was just heating up a little bit, so it was a very topical idea. And Jamaica had just been released from British rule, so it was an exotic location to also set it in. So that was the idea behind this particular plot, get Bond in Jamaica in a place people don't really know very well for a very, quote-unquote, current type of plot. I don't know that I truly understand why they had to kill the operative. I mean, what you'll ultimately find out is that he had geology as a hobby and had happened to be traveling around the Jamaican Isles and picked up some radioactive rocks, which of course means that if the plot is that there are radio frequencies distracting NASA off the coast of Florida, then the radioactive rocks are where those are taking place. I'm not sure that I buy it was really just his hobby. I mean, given that he's a secret agent, I was assuming that he was telling people this was a hobby. They say he goes through hobbies very quickly. I thought he was actually investigating, and when people are like, why do you keep going around the island? Oh, I'm really into geology right now, and fishing! Fishing's my ticket! (laughs) Why would he care about America's space program? Not his boss. I really think it was a hobby, to which I say, why assassinate him? Get him a hula hoop and give him a nice croquet set. There's other things you could do to distract him. Especially since he's so distractible. Yes. So don't forget, the man, Strangeways, went to Professor Dent, who was a geologist, to get these rocks investigated. And also, Dr. No kills anybody who wants to even walk on the island. Whoever talks about the island, Dr. No kills them or tries to kill them throughout the movie. As Arnie said in the plot summary, Bond was targeted three times before he even got on the island. Was it only three? It seemed like 30. Yes. <laughs> no, exactly. And so if you have an island called Crab Key, well, let's get the agent who probably has crabs, James Bond. <laughs> so he's brought in by M. And again, a lot of staples right here at the very beginning. Money Penny. You get the first throw the hat on the coat rack. Is that a thing? I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. It's a thing. I was excited. You have the red door. I love M's red door. And we do get a Q branch representative called Major Boothroyd, but it is not Desmond Llewellyn. It's somebody else playing the role. He is technically supposed to be Q. He is? Really? I thought Q was a person. I didn't know it was a branch. Q branch stands for quartermaster. And so, like, M is M, Q is Q. We all have initials. I don't know the real names, etc. But we know Major Boothroyd is his name. Ugh. And- he goes by Boothroyd here, and I think in the later movies, they do refer to Q now and then as Major Boothroyd. I, if my name was Boothroyd, I'd go by Q as well, because yeah. John Delancey's just too cool. But <laughs> Boothroyd sounds like something Bond might get if he messes with the wrong girl. <laughs> I was shocked that if this is Q Branch, they're giving him a gun? Aren't they supposed to give him a laser gun and cufflinks <laughs> that shoot ninja stars? and a bow tie that lights up in the dark. Why are they giving him a gun, and why is his old gun not good enough? Because it was a Beretta. Now it's a Walter PPK. This is his gun. He gets the gun. A Walter PPK, according to the movie and other ancillary research, can really pack a wallop with the first shot. A guy named Boothroyd is the guy who told Ian Fleming about the Walter PPK. 
And so that character is named after this gentleman who's an expert in guns who Fleming consulted with. And the Walther is James Bond's signature gun. In the movie, they talk about how he carried a Beretta. It jammed on him in his last mission. He was six months recovering. So the reason we don't get gadgets, I don't have an answer for you. Of course, that's the scene we come to expect. And as a Bond fan, one of the things I look forward to in every Bond movie is the Q branch scene. But here, he just gets a gun. And I don't know, I didn't really miss the gadgets all that much in this movie. I like the gadgets a lot, usually, and sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not. But here, I, I didn't really miss it. But yeah, it seemed a little weird that he only got a gun. I'm not going to lie. So Strangway already is on to this radioactive island, as it were. He goes to the local professor who is on the take, is paid by Dr. No to keep Radioactive Island, it's called Crab Key, to keep that off the radar of everyone. And so why didn't he just say, they're fine, and that's it? I mean, it seems like all these plot contusions are ridiculous. This Dr. No plot is pretty terrible. I completely agree, and... I didn't realize how bad it was until, I'd say, about the halfway point. And then I'm like, you know what? There really isn't a plot. Brock, you said this is a detective story. It may be a detective story, but what it's not is a mystery. We're watching a man detect. So, yes, it is literally a detective story, but it's not like your classical detective mystery where the audience could be brought in and a whodunit or something. It's just literally, and this is the impression I have about all the James Bond films, which worries me, it's literally just watching James Bond go from place to place, get involved with action as he does, and if you like the character, you go with the ride, but if you don't, it's not going to be the story that hooks you. That's very accurate. It's more of a MacGuffin, as we say. <laughs> but in this particular movie, we are watching Bond put all the things together. Of course, all signs lead the Doctor No very quickly, yet he still detects for a while before he goes over to the island. This mysterious island has got a dragon. No one goes there. Well, hmm, I wonder where the radioactive frequencies could be emanating from. I mean, you don't even have to be a spy to figure that out. You have to be over the age of seven, which I wasn't when I saw this, so <laughs> I did not know. Right. I still think, though, that this detective story of a Bond movie tries to adhere to a plot more than other ones do because a lot of the action doesn't really seem to me that it's plugged in for a cool action scene like we'll see in other Bond movies. Here, like the first action scene we see when he gets to Jamaica and the guy at the airport picks him up and Bond figures out he's not the contact he's supposed to be and they have a fist fight, that's the first action scene we see Bond in and it is organic into the plot of the movie. I disagree that it was integral to the plot of the movie because you have Bond thinking he's being followed by people who turn out to be allies from the CIA Whereas the driver is one in a string of people who just try to kill Bond, but it's not a plot-driven kill Bond, it's just another obstacle. I dare say it was almost Austin Power-ish in how many thugs attack James Bond. The henchmen are a linchpin for how good a Bond is going to be. You need to have good henchmen in order to feel like you're in for a good time here. There is way too many of them. Yeah, when your driver from the airport and the lady taking your photograph and everyone that you meet. I mean, the professor. Is there anyone in Jamaica not working for Dr. No to cover his trail? Quarrel. Just quarrel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I think you're right. 
And there's so many. You mentioned the photographer. She's at the airport when Bond comes because that Dr. No plans for everything. She happens to be there right when he arrives, tries to snap a picture. She snaps a picture later. She does nothing. She does nothing. <laughs> Their henchmen come and go. All these attacks, the driver, the photographer, it's just there. Honestly, I'm going to say I think this movie isn't very well made. It just seems like we got to have an action scene, so let's put one together. But I, the attackers are anonymous. Sometimes you literally don't even see them. There's just a car, and it was hard for me to get into a lot of this action. The first car chase I tried to go with when they're running from the airport, but, oh boy, I thought this was one step below a Frankie Valley Beach movie with its rear projection. <laughs> yeah, everyone's here to kill James Bond. My favorite henchmen are the three blind mice. I'm real mad they never even come up again. You know, they do try and he's going into the nightclub and they take aim at him and decide they don't have a clear shot. We never even see those guys again. And they're the ones that killed the guy he's here to find. Never seen again. That was frustrating because I felt like they should be avenged. It proves that the henchmen don't matter. I mean, at the very end of the movie, the henchmen are fleeing all over the place. The only one who matters is no. And even the three blind mice, they're just tools of no. So he's the only one to focus on, which is problematic when he's a unspoken of even mysterious somebody for three quarters of the movie. And look at who else he's hiring. The professor, Dent. He was the one trying to steer Strangeway away from the radioactivity. Now he's been told to kill Bond with a tarantula in a little cage like he holds with a string. He's like, here, take the Can you imagine the fairy ride? Like he's riding back to like, oh, hey, man, what are you doing with the spider? Uh, yeah, I, I got to go assassinate somebody with this. It's Jamaica. <laughs> Nobody looks twice. <laughs> Come on. First of all, as a child, this was the worst way you could kill someone. I have arachnophobia. It scared the crap out of me <laughs> that he was going to kill Bond with a spider. That was brilliant when you are six years old. Get a little older and you will learn that tarantulas are not poisonous <laughs> and cannot kill you. And he is set up to fail here by planning it in Bond's room. I actually read that they were so scared of the spider biting them that they had the glass in between the actor. Really? They had glass between the Can actor and the it? spider? <laughs> That's almost as big a shock that there was rear projection. I'm looking at that. I'm like, it looks like the spider's about a foot above that person. And then I ended up going online. I'm like, I got to see. Yep, it was on glass. Yes. And they actually did have a stuntman put it on his actual arm for that one <laughs> shot. You guys are laughing at this, and I understand that it's funny, but they were really saying that the spider could kill somebody. It was a lethal spider. <laughs> I'm here to tell you all, as someone that has studied spiders, there is no tarantula on Earth that has ever been reported as killing a human being. It has never happened once. This is ridiculous. And you know who I blame? Harry Belafonte. That damn Deo song. <laughs> Highly deadly black tarantula. It is not highly deadly. I did my research. The spider he was talking about on the banana boat is a poisonous spider called a banana spider. And that <laughs> banana spider didn't rhyme with banana. So tarantula, banana, he went with tarantula. But I got news for you. Dent is set up to fail here with the spider assassination <laughs> plot. 
My biggest problem with that scene, actually, was when Bond actually kills the spider and the music goes bump, bump, bump. That felt old to me. A lot of this movie obviously feels old because of when it was shot, but that particular choice of that music thing was the thing about that scene that bothered me more. More than about the glass, and I didn't know about the poisonous spider thing, Stuart. So there you go. But <laughs> A grown man does not look cool beating a bug dead. I mean, that just, I mean, it kind of kills his, his sexual machismo thing he had going. Who cares? The first half, you're in Jamaica. I mean, I don't care what if the plot's going or not. It's a beautiful location. People have great suits. It's just a great time period. I want to be there. I feel like I'm in vacation. But when this plot happens, I'm thinking, oh boy, just get to the damn island. We need less killer tarantulas. You gotta look at it from two different things. First of all, Brock, with the music, I like the bop, 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 bop as he smashes the tarantula. <laughs> it was so over the top. I was laughing. Right. But second, Look at it from a woman's point of view, Stuart. This is a man who brings home thousands and thousands of dollars from gambling. He dresses nice. He's a great lover in bed. And he's going to kill the spiders for you. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. Is it a turn on? I wouldn't think so. My wife calls me upstairs at all hours of the night just to kill spiders. I am this house's spider killer. Arnie, you can back me up on that. You too, you as well, right? No, I make Marjorie do it, but when she does it, I have an app on my phone, so every time she smashes with the shoe, it goes, bop, 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 bop. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, okay. So <laughs> but we got to get to another assassin, the whitest Chinese lady I've ever seen, Miss Terrell. Obviously, these people were not Chinese, and everyone's supposed to be Chinese, and I don't know why they didn't hire Asian actors for this, but yes, that bothered me as well. It's a little hard in this day and age to go with so many people trying to play Chinese. At least they didn't play Mickey Rooney stereotypes, you know, from Breakfast at Tiffany's. At least they went a little milder on that. But they tried to make them up to all be Asian, and I don't think it really worked. They were supposed to be Asian? Yes. Miss Terrell is Asian. Did you see that wig? That is totally a Chinese wig. Honestly, I thought maybe (laughs) half white, but I didn't realize they were going for a mammy type thing. Yes, and I do feel like this is a movie that is reflective of the racial tensions of the time. It would be hard to totally castigate this movie for not being progressive. It's not progressive. But, you know, you already had an evil, bad girl character. This could have been the photographer. She was beautiful. She played the part. She could have been your assassin here, but she was an actual minority. I don't think at this time, 1962, they wanted their star to have sex with a woman of color. So you have this white woman, Miss Tarot, quote-unquote, the Asian seductress, and this phony plot that, again, perpetuates the unnecessary need to be on the main island and not at the Dr. No cool lair. Yeah, I honestly thought she'd be the Bond girl. I was a little surprised. I mean, we started with Sylvia, and now we get her, and I'm just surprised at the fact that she doesn't last either. And, of course... We don't get the Bond girl of the movie until like 50 minutes into the movie. Usually you would think the Bond girl will be introduced in the first reel. That said, I do think that Bond's most badass moment is that he goes to her house, avoids the rear projection car chase, to get to her house far away, 
bangs her, knowing that she's betraying him, puts her in jail, and then shoots the professor de- dead, like in cold blood. Didn't need to kill him. He could have put him in the back seat of the car, too. But nope, he lets him assassinate the pillow and then puts two slugs into him. In the back, I believe. I like that scene a lot. I like this characterization. If Bond was squeaky clean, I'd have a much harder time going with it. Even if he was squeaky clean, but a little promiscuous, you know, because that's what guys do. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. But the fact that he's like, screw you, I'm killing you, I'm an assassin, this is what I do. I like that hardness of James Bond. It's something that I've heard Craig credited a lot with, but yet here it is in this very first movie in 62. He's a brute. He's an ape. And it's cool. I agree with you. It's his coolest moment in this movie. In every single James Bond movie, I always am able to find what I call James Bond moments that are just perfect for the character. Things that I say, yes, that is something I love about this guy. And in this movie, this is the one. And this scene was extremely controversial. They had to beg for it to stay in the movie from the censors because Bond shoots a guy in cold blood in the back. And they, what you just said, Stuart, about how he shoots the pillow first, that's the reasoning why you could shoot the guy in the back, in my opinion. The guy tried to kill you at least once. It was pretty much self-defense anyway. And the man was reaching for the gun to shoot him again. The line is, you had your six, and then Bond shoots him. It's cold. It's very cold. But at the same time, this man's a spy. This man has a license to kill. And you have to have this moment in this movie to really show us who this guy can be. Yeah, but at the same time, when you think about it, he is a geologist. He's a professor with a tarantula and a gun. He's not really a heavy. Bond didn't have to go this way. It's what lets you know that he bends the rules to kill, that he must like to kill. He has a license to do so, and he takes advantage of it, just as he takes advantage of Tarot. I love the way the scene was filmed, how a camera moves up to... Bond putting a a gun in his hand as the door opens and it pans up and then all you see is the gun. The whole staging of the scene also adds a lot to it for me and I really enjoyed that. I didn't feel the scene was dated at all in the way it was shot. No, I love just kind of being here. I love this time capsule look. You know, I might want to credit the cinematographer or maybe it's just because this is what everything looked like and they just filmed it accurately. But it's fun to be in Jamaica in 1962. I really think that the fact that nothing is happening in the plot is not a problem for me, really, because I'm enjoying the vicarious thrill of, yeah, all of this silly excess in this location. It does feel like a party, even though, as a plot, it feels pretty shabby. I agree with you, Stuart, that I like being here in this time. I think that, honestly, my severe love of X-Men First Class has really opened my eyes to this time, and seeing some of this going on there. I'm having a lot of fun with the look. I'm having a lot of fun with the people. But, oh no, the fact that nothing's really happening with the plot is severely burdening my enjoyment (laughs) with watching this film. Severely. And it's this scene right here that we're talking about where he kills the guy where it's like, yes, you could bring me back in now. I've been kind of biding my time, but this scene is so good. Let's go nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) No, they go to Crab Key. Finally, we get some allies here. We have Felix. This is sort of a returning character. Yeah, I was surprised he showed up early, too. I know Felix Leiter from my marathon, so I know we'll be seeing more of the Yank CIA agent. And unfortunately, (laughs) because this actor, I know I'm from Hawaii Five-0, 
Jack Lord, as soon as I saw him, I knew he wasn't a heavy. They're trying to play us off like he's following Bond. I did think Quarrel was a bad guy because of the way everything's played, but every time Jack Lord's there, I'm like, oh, he's a good guy. He's Felix Leiter all as well. I think they modeled him after JFK. You notice that? He looks like the president at the time. He looks like a youthful JFK. I think that was intentional. I think they wanted people to quickly assume, yeah, we don't know about his dark assistant, but oh, this guy's one of us. You know, I unfortunately think they do play into some of the racial politics here. And yes, Felix, right away, there's never any doubt. He really is CIA. He really is here to help. And he'll get Quarrel to get Connery to the island. Even though it's a scary island with a dragon. There'll be monsters there. You know, they got to play that up. But that's the plot. I actually liked Quarrel. I thought he was kind of a cool character. I liked him when he was the mysterious boatman. I really liked him when he and the restauranteur tried to beat up Bond. And then yeah. I liked him even more when he became like the thug who almost breaks the female photographer's arm. He's going to do what it takes. He gets that one cool moment where he breaks her camera bulb and allows it to cut his face and he just doesn't even flinch. Yeah, I agree. He wins you over, even though it's a crappy part. Yeah. So when he started talking about dragons, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, li- I'm liking you. Don't do this to the man. Barney's right. With the whole dragon thing, with the superstition, the local man kind of aspect to it, almost ruined the character. So when he actually does get it, it doesn't have any resonance for me. You know, it made me wish that there was a dragon. It made me wish that there was going to be something behind it. When you actually see the damn dragon, it's what, a tractor? Well, you know that when you see the dragon prince. I'm like, (laughs) I look at it, I'm like, yeah, they have a tank. (laughs) And I was surprised that Quarrel went and not Felix. I know Felix is such a big part of the series, the fact that Felix is like, yeah, I'm going to stay here and enjoy the sun. Here, take my black man. Yes, it really does feel that way. Yes, he'll carry your bags. I got to say, if you're going incognito, at least get him a right shirt. He's wearing a fire engine red shirt this whole time. They're out running like people with dogs and everything. I'm like, let the man take off the shirt, okay? It's drawing attention. (laughs) Well, perhaps that's the best way to be inconspicuous is to be very conspicuous. (laughs) (laughs) Then why shack up with a a conch shell grabbing, barely dressed vixen that comes washing ashore haphazardly? This is where I turned on the movie. I'm sorry. I realized that Ursula Andress is widely acclaimed for her role here. I'll widely acclaim how she looks in her role here. But the randomness of we're going to throw this what, poverty-stricken babe (laughs) who is collecting shells and has a knife? We're just going to throw her in the middle of this so that Bond has someone to bang at the end? This is where I realized that how could this be based on a book when the screenwriters seem to care so little? I'm back again to my Frankie Valley Beach story thing. This is what I keep going back to with this more and more is plot doesn't matter. Let's enjoy the vibe. All we needed was a couple more dance numbers than we already had. She is a total vision. When she comes out of the water singing underneath the mango tree, we are all amazed. It is everything the reputation would have you believe. And they kind of have a theme here. It's no doctor, no, but it's underneath the mango tree. All right, that's lame, right? Yeah, very lame. They use it so much. If they use it a little bit less, it'd be nice. It's like the only song in Jamaica is 
underneath the mango tree. Everyone sings it. Everyone knows it. But it was written for the movie specifically, and they made sure they taught Connery and Ursula Andress it so they can have their interaction. They thought at the time, with the interaction, it was a nice moment to sing that song with each other. It doesn't take us long to figure out that her voice is dubbed, and <laughs> she's really ignorant, and she has nothing to do with Dr. No in this plot. I kept waiting for somehow her story to connect with what they were doing on the island. But she's there literally to pick up shells so she can make 50 bucks in Miami. This is her role. It costs more than 50 bucks to get to Miami, but never mind. I completely agree with both of you on the role of Honey Ryder in this movie is completely superfluous. The iconic vision of her coming out of the water is film history. I mean, we all know that. Honestly, I didn't know that. I thought that was Bo Derek in 10. I didn't realize it started. Fair enough. And I believe Ursula Andress was married to John Derek at the time she made this movie, coincidentally. No way! Really? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. my god, that man just... Oh, what a... Yeah, he, someone needs forced. to make a story about him. <laughs> <laughs> He's a real James Bond in that sense. Yeah. So with her role in this movie, it's completely unnecessary. The fact that Bond takes to her so quickly and then tries to save her life at the end of the movie, too, really doesn't make any sense at all. And I completely agree with that 100%. But on the other hand, she is the first Bond babe and one everyone goes to. And you have to when you're watching this movie, you have to question why, if her role in this movie is nothing, and we all know that in future installments, they fix that problem. They try. They mention the fact that her father was a marine biologist and that he's disappeared on the island. One would think that you wouldn't go back to the island or would bring the authorities, but... Maybe look for bones, not shells. (laughs) (laughs) But Stuart, she's not there to investigate that. She's there for shells. That's exactly my point. If she had been there to research why her father had disappeared, I could totally accept all of the other fanciful notions of her being in that bikini and, you know, shacking up with Connery so quickly. But because they're not even trying, she just emerges to be, yes, the babe that we are to fawn over, that Connery is to earn at the end of the story. She is not a character. She is a prize. More to the point, is she mentally challenged? Yes, I know, right? She's self-educated. She's like, I read encyclopedias A through T, which means she would even know that tarantulas are not poisonous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just some of the things she does and some of the things she says and some of the way she acts. I'm not saying she's not book learning smart. I'm saying that she's just acting so ignorant that I feel... Her IQ may be in the 60s. It's bad. And that's ultimately, I think, even for us modern audiences, we don't see women characters, even babe characters, even the girlfriend roles nowadays are written with more equality and more concern for their general appearance of intellect. I mean, nobody this ditzy comes on screen in a modern movie without getting our scorn. We usually laugh at bimbo women. See, I'm all about... If you are watching a movie from 50 years ago, that you have to give a bit of concessions to what was going on at the time and how movies were made. And then, of course, we talk about here at Now Playing how just because it was the first doesn't mean it's the best kind of idea, right? Well, here in this situation, as watching the Bond series, this is the first one we're going throughout the rest of the series. I am not as critical on this woman's role in this movie as you guys are, but I completely see where everything you're saying, and I agree with you. I think... There's no reason for her to be here besides being pretty, but it just didn't bother me as much as it bothered you two, because I guess 
I'm willing to go along with it because it's the first James Bond movie and obviously there are things in James Bond movies that don't make sense in any other movie. And one of these, for this sample, for this one, is that the woman is there for no real reason and sticks around for no real reason. That's all there is to it. I guess I'm giving a big concession, but I agree with both of you and notice the same thing, that her role has no sense here. Yeah, you have to go with it completely as a fantasy. There is no... Other reward for this, this is a quote-unquote spy movie for people that don't care about espionage. They only think of it as a glamorous way to self-gratify. What is not one of the big appeals of the Bond franchise? Yeah, I, mean, I don't think I'm saying that as a criticism. I'm saying oh. that it's a fact. Oh, good. Okay, because I thought there was a bit of criticism in that. And that's one of the things I love about James Bond is that the fantastical elements. And even me as a James Bond fan, I have a line. Okay, I can't go with everything, and we'll talk about that as we go. But for me, I'm willing to give some of this fantastical stuff and the beautiful stuff to it because it's very much part of a James Bond experience. Oh, absolutely. If you want the gritty, ugly truth of what it is to be a spy, go read Le Carre. Go watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. There's a very anti-glamorous British spy movie series. I mean, I think Smiley is the anti-Bond. This is about the fantasy. You have to go with it. I'm going with it. But that said, even on this level, I'm uncomfortable going with Honey Rider as the child sex object that is being presented out of the water here. I'm surprised she wasn't wearing floaties. <laughs> a big inner tube with a little monster head on the top. Yes. I mean, she has the mentality of a six or seven year old and the body of a 18, 19 year old. But then we finally get to our mysterious titular Dr. No. Two of them do anyway. What happened to Quarrel? He's just gone all of a sudden. No, the dragon ate him. It burned it him. It ate him? It burned him. It fried him alive with the flamethrower. Really? Yeah. I missed that. It was very underexposed. I gotta say, these night photography weren't so good. I couldn't see what was going on. Okay. He's just gone all of a sudden. Listen, Kirk, his girlfriend, and a red shirt go to the island. (laughs) (laughs) Point taken. Yeah, I figured just by his race alone, I knew he probably was not going to live. Most Bond assistants don't anyway, but I do feel like the colorful local that is your aide does not get to be with you in the boat with Honey Rider at the end. I knew he would get it, but it's done so unceremoniously. I was like, hey, what happened to the guy I liked? Doesn't matter. When they do get captured and they go into the facility, they take, it seems like five, ten minutes, but it's probably shorter than that, of them being unradiated. I would, like, deloused almost <laughs> with all the stuff that's <laughs> thrown Truly. on them. Yes, more scary than a dragon is the idea you've been when splashing through a swamp of radiation. And their cure for this is to, like, give them a bubble bath, like, on a conveyor belt. <laughs> and I think that is also a product of the time, because if this movie was made today, that scene would be a very quick... This is radiation by way of, you know, duck and cover. You know, like, oh, yeah, I'll save myself from a nuclear blast by getting under my desk, and that will protect me. Oh, I've been in radioactive swamp water. Here, let me take a shower. I'll be fine. And it's not like one of those... Remember in high school chemistry class, you had the emergency showers with the hard water that would clear you up? No, they're lathering off and, like, <laughs> looking like they're in a zest ad. I think she had Mr. Bubble, honestly. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if she had a rubber ducky with her. But I do love this underground base. I think it's a lot of fun going strictly as camp fantasy, the idea that they're settling in this hotel. You know, here they are in their their lair. They think they're dead meat. And no, there's maids and let me take you to your room. Let me get you what you want. Have some breakfast, this and that. It's very cute the way that they've arranged everything for them. 
one of the things I'm really impressed with that they do, as I can remember in all the future Bond things, are they make the theme of James Bond actually reflect the area that he's in. Do you notice it's kind of like a chopsticks James Bond when he gets to like the Chinese layer? He's like, chunk, 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 chunk. Junk, 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 junk. That was really cool. Here is where the Austin Powers really kicked in. I'm not a huge Austin Powers fan, but I've seen those movies pretty recently. And so here I'm seeing the genesis of all things Dr. Evil. This entire base, subterranean, with a staff. I mean, <laughs> just in case somebody gets past the tarantula, there is a suite waiting for them. <laughs> complete with complimentary drugged coffee. Why do they drug them? They already got them captive. And Arnie, if you think this is Dr. Evil, you just wait till we get to You Only Live Twice. I agree with Stuart on that. If you are going to treat these people like they're guests, which talk about setting precedents for Bond movies, this happens quite a lot, why drug him? And then why sneak into his room and look at him without killing him right there? It doesn't make much sense at all. Well, no, this does make sense. Dr. No wants to recruit him, not kill him. I liked that because I had the same questions going on, but it's because he wants a partner. He's finally found an equal. Dr. No is such an egotist. He's like, nobody is worthy of me, but maybe Bond. I almost think there might have been a little bit of a man crush going on. And I'm not just talking about what No was doing with his hands. What little hands he had left. What happened to the hands? They burned off by playing around with radiation? Yes. Okay. Arnie, the come join me or die scenario, I know he says that at the dinner table and all that, but I never really buy that. Oh, I completely buy it. I mean, I have no reason not to. Why would he do that if he wasn't legit? I think he thought that Bond would be a wonderful tool for Spectre. And let's talk about Spectre. (laughs) Another thing that I knew of Spectre, wasn't it in like the James Bond kids cartoon that they were fighting Spectre? But I thought a fake evildoer agency, that feels very Roger Moore to me. I was floored that Spectre started here in Doctor No. Even in the new movies, there's the idea of a shadow agency, quantum, that lies beyond the governments that we see. I like it. Yes, and Spectre takes the place of Smirsh, which (laughs) sounds just as silly, but (laughs) from what I understand is actually a Soviet counterintelligence agency. Right. But Arnie, if memory serves correctly, I don't think Spectre is in the Roger Moore movies by name. And we'll talk about why later. So if you think it's a Roger Moore type concept, I actually think Spectre only exists with Sean Connery's James Bond. Wow, that floored me because it just seems so campy that there'd be this evildoer terrorist organization. Well, maybe that's not so campy after 9-11, but... No. Camp is a part of this. you got to embrace that early. I'm glad we're getting it early. I think you need to accept that the ventures are going to be silly if you're going to go through all 25 movies here. It's only in the last couple that they sort of up their game and do something a little bit more stark. But... I like it, and I do feel like they are more of a Soviet enterprise than they are in the middle. I mean, they say that they're neither West or East, that they are a third party that is wanting to rule the world. But this is a Chinese guy that came from KGB origins. Ultimately, it does feel like the good guy is the West and the bad guy is the Russian. Now, also, don't forget, though, MI6 is a counterintelligence agency for the British. They just don't have a funny name like Spectre. 
they're called MI6. If they had an anagram for their name, then maybe we'd find them just as silly. No doubt. You want to talk about silly? Bonnet has to get out of captivity by beating a shoe through an electric grate. Is that electrically resistant shoes that he's wearing? Rubber soles. Yeah, okay. Stuart, that's not the silly part of it. The silly part of it is he goes through an air vent that suddenly gets hot, and then water inexplicably goes through that vent, and yet, (laughs) when Bond escapes on the other side, the water doesn't come out the other side either. I was very (laughs) confused why water was in there at all. This is the reactor, right? I don't know anything about nuclear reactors, except that there is some water, and it turns radioactive, and you don't want to drink out of anything that you see there. That's kind of what I know about nuclear reactors. But I would think if it's getting hot and there's water splashing around you, you're probably already dead. You just don't know it yet. (laughs) But Stuart, he crawls through what looks like an air vent, a giant air vent in his cell, because that's the actual reactor and it's cooling things down. Then why would they have the reactor have a vent into all the cells unless they try to kill people? It doesn't make much sense. You see how no. the duct work is all confusing. I think it was a prob- obviously a budget hotel that they're working with here. The downside of having such nice complimentary service is the fact that you are going to be radiated by the end of the evening. <laughs> I did read the vent with the water and things like that comes out of the Dr. No novel. It may make more sense in context in the book, and they added it in because it's part of the novel. Ask me again in six weeks. That is the sixth book in the series, so I'll know then. But as I go through those books and Nacho series, I probably won't be able to comment on the movies the whole time because, you know, they're all mixed up order. But I'll be looking for that when we get to the book. Please do and let us know. Will do. So... Why would anyone join Dr. No? What is the grand plan here? We know he's dealing with radiation. We know he wants to thwart NASA working off Cape Canaveral, Florida. It's not a radiation bullet that's taking out any shuttles or anything. It's just like radio signals, right? Radio frequency. What's happening? What is he doing? The way I understand it is that the radio signal is atomically powered. Okay. Yes. <laughs> right. So they, uh, Yes. But they think, I'm not sure how far Jamaica is to Florida. Close enough. I'll buy it. Maybe it just takes an extra dose of radiation to send those AM, FM radio signals to our coast. Sure. Whatever. I don't 100% understand how radio signals would interfere with the launch completely, obviously, the buttons and all that jazz, and what their grand plan is to just disrupt the terrorism part of what Spectre stands for, I think, is what they're going for here. That's how I take it. Yeah, like a lot of the movie, it's nebulous inference of evil without a real clear sense of evil. Dr. No needs Bond. He needs Bond real bad. He needs someone to come in here and tell him what to do with his money and his cool gadgets and his dragon and how to really mess up a world plan. I think that his target is way too small and nebulous here to really be effective. We don't know what will be the problem if Bond allows him to do his thing. So consequently, no suspense here. Yeah. In every way, No is failing me as a villain, truthfully. From his, I couldn't type if you paid me hands. Yeah. His plan is inane. He comes across so non-threatening. His goons aren't great, but he is bad. He has no commanding presence. He has no evil presence. He's supposed to be a genius. He doesn't come off as smart. He really just comes off as an actor. That's about all I can get from him, and that's not very scary, unless you're Tom Cruise. I'm totally with you. This is where the movie lets me down. Up to that point, all of its faults are a strange kind of asset, really, because it's part of the fun, it's part of the fantasy. But the ultimate 
fantasy is that you have a bad guy just as over the top as the rest of your life. And here, this guy feels ordinary. His plan feels unintelligible, and he doesn't have any menace to him. I don't believe he could do anything evil. I disagree with you guys. I think that his quiet voice, the minimalistic way he moves and talks, the crushing with his steel hands on that statue is meant to provide menace. Clearly didn't work for you two. I agree with you. He's not the strongest James Bond villain, but he certainly is a prototype for him. He is certainly where they start. And yes, I agree that his plan makes not the biggest sense, but basically what it comes down to is this guy is, the whole movie is building up to this guy is evil because everyone fears him and he kills people who gets in his way and he has his grandmaster plan. He built this entire place and all of that's supposed to funnel into this guy is bad. And well, yes, it doesn't completely play, but I disagree that it doesn't play at all. I actually think he looks more Asian than anyone else pretending to be Asian in the movie. He's, <laughs> he's kind of a nebulous Asian. So I disagree with both of you. I think that it, enough is there for me, but he clearly is not the best Bond villain at all. And we'll see how we take this template and go leaps and bounds with it in future installments. And none of that is more apparent what you guys are talking about and how Dr. No dies. Yeah, when Bond finally breaks out and he pulls the Stormtrooper trick, he puts on the bunny suit, the Intel bunny suit, and is walking around and nobody's noticing except this guy doesn't know where he is supposed to be. Dr. No is managing his staff, making me think he's looking at exactly how many people are needed there. There's not one extra one because this guy's not in the right place. Every single person there was needed, but what made Dr. No at all tough was his dragon, who we never see again, his assassins, who we never see again, and his goons. His tarantula. <laughs> his tarantula, <laughs> but that got, that, that we know how it died. Bump, bump, bump. <laughs> but when it comes down to Dr. No versus James Bond mano a mano, Dr. No's gonna get screwed harder than Ursula. <laughs> Push him in the pool. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even know what this is. You know, there are times when I see Connery really grab it and be that kind of threatening guy that I want. It's like when he's shooting the professor. And then there are moments like this in the translator where I just feel like you don't look cool when you're beating up opponents that aren't worthy. It's like you said earlier, Stuart. It's all about having good henchmen without having an oddball or jaws that he can beat up on the way to the bad guy. Without the bad guy having a super weapon that would actually hurt Bond and not a stock footage of a rocket, then there's nothing for me here. You're making a very good point. Things are missing here. And this end fight with Dr. No, since there is no henchman for Bond to go through first, is supposed to mean something to us that this very quick fight and the man can't get off a ladder because he can't grab the ladder with his hands, and that's how he dies, is supposed to be exciting to us. It's very anticlimactic. On the other hand, I don't know where they would put a henchman in this movie that would work. Right next to Dr. No. You would put him <laughs> right next to Dr. No. And that Bob would have to fight through him to get to Dr. No. That is where you put him. You know who I'd love? The guy doesn't have any hands. What if he had two henchmen? One was called righty and one was called lefty. And they like nice. did everything for him. One's artistic, one's scientific. I like this. But Dr. No takes a dip, and then Bond remembers, honey, I did not. <laughs> She's tied up in a waiting pool? It's very tragic. He rescues her just in the nick of time from getting wrinkled skin. <laughs> yeah. She ate an hour ago, and she's really going to get some stomach cramps. <laughs> 
and they escape. I gotta give it props. This movie has been, honestly, terrible in far as special effects and action goes to this point. But when they blow up the base, I'm like, well, that's what they saved their money for. It looked good. Yeah, gotta go out with a bang. Gotta like that. Wouldn't have been satisfying just to drive away. We need to see Crab Key explode. Yeah, I think it works completely. I also liked everyone fleeing and the whole thing. I think the end of this thing works. And speaking of going out with a bang, so does Bond with Honey. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And what a great moment. What a great moment. He, he loses the tether so he's in Malone time. It was a perfect Bond thing to do. It's great. It's a nice way to end the movie, and it's a perfect character moment for James Bond. And prevents Felix from doing one thing in this movie. That was all <laughs> he had to do was throw them to shore. Couldn't even get that in. That's the USA for you. I never really got from Bond that he was modest. He still needs to get back to shore. I'm surprised he just didn't let Felix watch. <laughs> Felix makes a comment to that, that he's doing quite well for himself as it is. So I like how Felix just acknowledges that, too. He's just glad not to be Dragon Flambe. <laughs> right, right. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Dr. No? Stuart. Real borderline. I was surprised. You know, I remember loving this one as a kid, mostly because of the spider. It ended up being a real problem for me. You know, I think that if you are here to enjoy the primal base moments of Bond, they're all here. I was surprised at how together they had elements of the formula. But overall, the drink don't taste right. It's all in the mixing. And maybe it was stirred and should have been shaken. I don't know. But the formula isn't tasting quite right yet. And although I love Connery here, I love Jamaica here, and I love the idea of a scary island where a no-handed radiation scientist is trying to destroy NASA, it sounds a lot more sexy than it actually is. And I'm going to have to say, ultimately, because they have such a weak villain, no to Dr. No. It's a mild not recommend, but I didn't enjoy it. Oh, thank God I'm not alone. (laughs) I really (laughs) thought this would be Batman 66 all over again, because... I do love the vibe of this. I love the iconography here, but I'd equate it to if you give me a big thing of grain and say, here, well, that's not as satisfying as beer. Eventually, the grain will become beer, and I like a good beer, but I don't need the barley alone. And that's what I feel I'm getting here. There's not even any cool gadgets here. The best thing we get is he uses his own hair, which I liked, but... It's not really Bond. It's more... It's not really his hair, either. Connery is totally bald. (laughs) You were a toupee in this one, too. I see bits that I really like. And the first 40 minutes of this, I was so into it. And then it just became so repetitive. And what could save me here? What could have saved me is if the action scenes were good, but they're just so cheaply made. I think even for the time... This movie was subpar in its delivery of action. When James Bond crashes his car into that other car, I was laughing for all the wrong reasons. What could have saved me is characters. But really, we've said it. They're all these stock stereotype characters. The only good character is Bond. And if Bond has no one to play against, then it's bland, not Bond. What could have saved me is an intriguing story. Here, it seems more happenstance and nonsense. So, Dr. No recommend. (laughs) And I'm going to give it a weak recommend, but for some of the same reasons you guys highlighted. I went into this movie not liking it. I've watched this movie before watching it two and a half times for this podcast, 
I've only seen it twice because when I was a kid, my parents insisted we watch this one because we hadn't watched a lot of Connery. We only watched a lot of more. And when I got those videotapes I mentioned early in the podcast in the 90s, I made sure to watch this one and I didn't enjoy it. I found it boring and dull. This time watching it, I really enjoyed how much of what we know as a Bond film is here. And I enjoyed the character of Bond. I enjoyed the one-liners that we actually get here and they were kind of fun. I enjoyed the camera work. I couldn't stop looking at some of the sets the beautiful photography, the on-location stuff, and I couldn't help but notice the horrible back projection, and I couldn't help notice how things were done. It was very borderline for me on how they could possibly get away with such beautiful parts and beautiful things in one scene and completely obvious sets in another. But all that being said, I found myself enjoying this movie more than I thought I was going to, and it does have its flaws. So it's a weaker recommend for me but I went with it more than you guys did, and I was enjoying it more. So maybe it's the Bond fan in me was enjoying all the Bond elements here in this very first picture. But clearly, there is room for improvement. Well, I think what we're all saying is the Bond is good, the movie isn't, and that'll determine whether you'll want to see it or not. It, Connery, as good as he is, it was not enough for me, and it doesn't sound like he was enough for you, Arnie. Not in the least, and honestly, now I'm scared. I'm signed on to 25 movies. <laughs> 25 movies. Welcome to my world, bitch! <laughs> How many of the 42 Marvel movies did I recommend? Maybe 10? I'm hoping that there's more here quickly, because if this is Connery Bond, maybe Connery is the most charismatic Bond we haven't found out yet, but... I doctor know this is not the best plot we're going to see, and I pray they get better fast. Plus, thank God we're almost done with this podcast so I can stop all the no puns. <laughs> you promise? Please. <laughs> doctor, no, I don't. <laughs> and, you know, what it makes a franchise is the second installment. If the second installment is good and can build upon the first one, then you have something. And we're going to get that quick. Normally, we release a podcast a week, but because of... Um... When do we just do one a week? Not in this year. <laughs> <laughs> there was a couple weeks there in July where it was just Batman. But yes, because of the timing and because we had to do everything we did this summer, we're actually getting a late start on Bond. By starting here in August, we need to go two a week. And you can discuss this movie with fellow listeners like yourself on our Facebook page and the forums. I know a lot of people have been excited about the prospects of us doing this series, and there's a lot of Bond fans out there who listen to now playing. So give us your thoughts on Dr. No by visiting our forums and visiting us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. You can also give us a good review on iTunes so other fans like yourself can find us find the Bond series, and we all can have a great old time. And don't forget about Books and Nachos, this week, Casino Royale. I look forward to hearing your thoughts, since this is the one I've actually read, and I remember liking it quite a bit, actually. Cool. Now playing, we'll return with From Russia With Love. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. 
You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, Jams. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. That's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. I'll, how about I do a books and nachos plug, and that will help us go into it. Perfect. Okay. But it means you guys are now committed. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing, Stuart. Are you sure you want to say this? I'm much? sure. I got the books. I cracked open <laughs> Casino Royale today. All righty. All right. It's like a tattoo. Let's do I it. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, of course he published Octopussy posthumously. There's no way he could do that while he was alive. Yeah. At Nose Island Base, Quarrel is killed and Bond is captured along with Comely Seashell Collector Honey Lane. Writer. <laughs> honey Writer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she could have been called Honey Lane. I mean, you know. Honey Any Abby. innuendo will do. <laughs> honey Lane, that must be the porn star. Dr. No was not the first Bond movie I ever saw, unless it was, you know, in vitro. But I got to say, when <laughs> I finally got around to seeing it. Mr. I can't do a Connery. Who are MI1 through 5? I, I missed those prequels. There actually are, is an MI5. I don't yeah. know much about it. Oh. Now you're just exposing me as ignorant. But <laughs> <there> MI5. <laughs> but in doing so, also through my own ignorance. I'm like... <laughs> From his, I couldn't type if you paid me hands. Yeah. To his, Imagine masturbation with those things. <laughs> you can hardly move them, and then you crush. What I mean, you're not. Go ahead. 
you're not wrong. The henchman aspect is definitely missing from. Does this that movie. mean I'm right? <laughs> oh. So we will be back on our next episode with Russia with Love. No, 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 no. Thank you. I have it. I have it. It's coming. Yeah, it's coming. yeah, yeah. It's coming. I got it. I, this, this, this is the easiest tagline to find in any series we've ever done ever. So. Money Penny. I can't do a Connery either. <laughs> Money Penny. There you go. Thank you. We the, also fan can do a, the fan can do a Connery. <laughs> Boothroyd sounds like something Bond might get if he messes with the wrong girl. Second venereal G's joke in two minutes. Fantastic, gentlemen. Fantastic. <laughs> we set the bar low at now saying. <laughs> <laughs>